Hello, and welcome to the Analytics FC podcast. I'm your host, Alex Stewart, Head of Content. Analytics FC and Fragerman have recently carried out a comprehensive review of the impact upon the UK football industry of the Governing Body Endorsement, or GBE, rules, which came into effect after Brexit. As listeners may know, a GBE is required in order to facilitate a successful international sportsperson visa application. The report, entitled Brexit Ball, an independent impact analysis upon British football of the governing body endorsement regulations since Brexit, is the first of its kind. Today, we have the great pleasure of welcoming John Kiley and Andy Watson to discuss the report and the post-Brexit implications for the world football transfer market. John is a senior associate at Fragman LLP, the world's largest specialist immigration firm, while Andy is Analytics FC's resident Brexit expert and also a player recruitment analyst, having worked at a number of English pro clubs. The report will be made publicly available in the coming weeks, so keep an eye out on the Analytics FC socials for how to download your copy. But in the lead up to that, we wanted to speak to Andy and John, who collaborated on the report to co-author it. So welcome both. Yeah, hi, Alex. Nice to be here. Thanks, Alex. So, John, it would be great to start with you to get some insight. Firstly, why these regulations came into force and your experience of what the process was from the FA and Home Office in terms of consulting with immigration specialists like yourself. Yes, of course. So if we cast our minds all the way back to the 2016 referendum and the Brexiteers mantra of taking back control of our borders and laws, although I didn't hear too many complaints about European footballers coming here and stealing our jobs, but the current regulations are very much in keeping with the post-Brexit immigration landscape. So if a club now wants to sign a non-British or settled player, an endorsement is now required to ascertain whether they are of a certain level in terms of quality. And this assessment is not made by the Home Office. The responsibility is outsourced to the FA and the SFA for English and Scottish clubs. So as with other UK immigration categories, these rules apply to EU citizens and other nationalities in exactly the same way. And initially the GBE proposal, the proposal was submitted to the government by the FA and after consultations was approved by the Home Office. The the SFA and the FA did work with the Scottish Premiership, the Premier League and the EFL when designing the endorsement process. I'm sure the Home Office would have given guidelines and set general parameters but the relevant football bodies were involved like I said. That's very interesting. In terms of quality being the threshold, why do you think they went for quality as a function? Because it's a slightly arbitrary assessment to base all of these regulations on. It's very much wanting to attract the best talent. And I mean, the, the FA stated that the system meets the joint objectives of the Premier League and the AFL and the FA to allow access to the best players and future talent for clubs, as well as safeguarding the England teams by ensuring opportunities for homegrown players. So I think it was the idea we still want to attract the best players but we don't want the game to be flooded by European talent and needs to be that focus on on developing homegrown players. Okay so what is the process now that clubs have to go through when they're signing a player who's not from the UK and just to be clear as you said before this applies to players irrespective of where they're coming from so before there was a clear difference in acquiring a player who was a French national to acquiring a player who was a Brazilian national but now the same rules apply globally to anyone who is not UK-based. 
So what are those rules? Spot on. Before we dove into that, it's good to define what a non-UK player is. You're, you're British, you're fine, or you're settled. And a settled person is someone who has the right to live and work in the UK indefinitely. And that could be an Irish national, or that could be a European national, or, or another national who has indefinite leave to remain or settlement in the UK. So if you were a European player who had played in the UK for five years prior to Brexit, they may well be settled and therefore they aren't subjected to these requirements. I think that's worth noting. In order to register a player, a club has to submit, so this is a non-British or settled player, a club has to submit all documents relating to the transfer, including contract, transfer agreement, and permission to work in the UK if they're not British or settled. So if they do require permission to work in the UK, the player must provide a letter from the relevant sports governing body. So this is the FA in England and the SFA in Scotland. Also, the club must hold a valid sponsor license granted to them by the Home Office. It's worth noting that a club can apply for a GBE at any point during the season, but the deadline for a club seeking a GBE during a transfer window is midday of transfer deadline day. So player can actually register for a club without a GBE but in order to play they must have that endorsement. So quick summary, GBE can be granted to a player for a maximum initial period of three years or the length of the player's contract whichever is shorter. Same with managers, coaches, three years or shorter should the contract be shorter. I think this is a really interesting point and worth flagging. There's a lot of players soon coming up to the expiry of their endorsement and therefore their visas so clubs really really need to be on this and they should be actively tracking players who are endorsed and assessing whether they will qualify for further endorsement. For example, if a player's been out on loan to a lower band team, this could cause real problems. They may struggle to meet the requirements for additional endorsement. A GBE is given and assessed based on international appearances, domestic minutes, continental minutes, final league position of the player's last club and continental progression of that last club and the league quality of, of the club. So the men's game player must obtain 15 points. Women's is 24 points. You can obtain an auto pass if via international appearances. If you don't meet the 15 or the 24 points, you can make an application to the exceptions panel to appeal. In the men's game, you have to show that the player achieved between 10 and 14 in order to go to the panel. And with the women, it's 20 to 23 points. And then once endorsement's granted, the player can then apply for their visa. It's an international sports person visa. Okay, that's great. I have one really quick question off the back of that very comprehensive answer. Thank you. We have seen plenty of players in the past being given contracts of over three years. It's not uncommon, particularly if you're signing a high profile player, if they're 23 or 24, you want to secure them through the absolute peak of their career. Do we think that some clubs are now going to limit themselves to three-year contracts or do we think they're going to continue to give four, in some instances, five-year contracts and hope very much that the player maintains their quality and the club maintains their league position so that they're able to renew their GB during the lifespan of that contract? Yeah, very good question. I think ultimately clubs will want to protect their assets, hence why they offer these long-term contracts, four, five, sometimes even longer. So I don't think they would risk losing that player for free after three years. I think they would hope and, and look to ensure that the player would meet the requirements for further endorsement and then be granted another three years or up until the expiry date of their existing contract. 
Brilliant, thank you. Andy, obviously a lot of this is to do with protecting the intrinsic quality of the game in England, and the flagship of that is obviously the Premier League. The Premier League has an arguable case for being the best league in the world, and so perhaps some of the conversation around these regulations were about keeping it in that position of hegemony. How have the new regs affected the Premier League? Well, it's interesting because initially that was a big concern, I think, of a lot of football fans, clubs, owners. But we found in the research that generally the Premier League, it doesn't emerge unscathed. There are differences, but in terms of that top line of can we attract the best quality players, the answer is probably still yes. And a lot of that comes down to, as you said, the powerful nature of the Premier League, how popular it is worldwide, the generation of funds that we get through the TV deals, that power that's still growing. And we've seen all the headline figures from this summer in terms of the amount of money spent compared to the rest of the big five leagues. I think it was Premier League have spent more than all those other big five leagues, which will mainly be referred to as band one leagues because band one is pretty much the rest of the big five. We spent more than those leagues combined and was the headline player in that is Erling Haaland and the fact that he has come over to the Premier League probably illustrates more than any other single thing that Premier League can still attract the key talent. As John kind of prefaced there, a lot of stakeholders were present in this bringing together what they all wanted from this deal from the Brexit regulations obviously being able to attract the key talent is a big thing for the Premier League and also for the FA and and for the EFL as well in terms of a lower level but also being able to bring in future talent that's the thing that's really changed for the Premier League there's an argument for Premier League clubs that because of the regulations they're having to wait until a player is pretty much fully developed to bring them over and therefore they're paying more money you know that will require further investigation a lot of tools being used to define whether that is true or not but what I can say from the research and it is in the the document that people will be able to read soon is that a massive change for Premier League has been when you're bringing in young players so if we go back to 2020-21 season and look at the top 10 transfers by fee of 18 year olds then English clubs really dominated that with Fabio Silva topping that list at Wolves they brought in for 36 million but also Ahmad Diallo Pablo Moreno Kiana Herver Facundo Palistri and Philip Stefanovic were seven of the top eight transfers in that season but as soon as we go into the post-Brexit era that monopoly at the top of the market is massively changed so even in 21-22 which was the first season of the post-Brexit era Eduardo Camavinga was the key transfer and obviously he went to Real Madrid but also Cardo Pepe um, Mariba Chico Marco Cruz these are all players who went outside of the Premier League and even in this summer we've seen again a change in that there's been actually domestic transfers like uh, Chukwameka going to Chelsea Lavia and Larios going to Southampton. So those are domestic ones that aren't affected by Brexit, but outside of that, most young players are going to different leagues now, which is really interesting development and obviously not one that probably the Premier League clubs are that happy about. It does change when you look at under-21 transfers, though. The Premier League does still maintain a very powerful position in terms of bringing those 19, 20, 21-year-olds into the country, but those are probably the key changes in, in, in terms of transfers. We have seen an increase in spending. We haven't seen an increase in domestic spending as a percentage obviously I wasn't in the room when these things were decided but I'm sure that with these regulations there was probably a thinking that maybe the domestic market might get a little boost from it in terms of Premier League clubs looking domestically for some talent but as a percentage that hasn't happened in terms of overall domestic spend yes that's gone up but I wouldn't necessarily attribute that to Brexit more a case of the Premier League having more money to spend. Just quickly, before we look at the rest of the domestic market, because it's obviously very interesting, the rest of the championship and the EFL, they are a buying market as well as a selling market. 
So I'd like to come to that in a second. But going back to your point about younger players, presumably for a year or two, there's going to be a weird little edge case of European players who were acquired when they were young pre-Brexit and are still entitled to work because they were acquired before Brexit. But they are also young enough that if they weren't already here, they would have to get a work permit. So how are clubs getting their heads around these sorts of little oddities? It's interesting because I wonder how much of this was discussed pre the rules being published. There wasn't very much notice given as to what the rules were going to be. They were published in December and enacted in the January, this is December 2020 into January 2021. So yes, there's going to be a lot of these little edge cases that come from pre that period where young players have signed those contracts. John may be in a better position to be able to say what their legal kind of status is, but I would imagine that they won't they won't be kicked out at the end of their deals. Again, John, you might be able to come in on that. So the idea I assume would have been if they were signed before the end of the transition period, they would have been eligible to apply under the European Settlement Scheme, which would have given them the right to live and work and play football in the UK. So if they'd have made that application before the end of the transition period, they're protected. In terms of the rest of English football, the Championship, League One, League Two, what's the picture like there, both in terms of the selling market upstream, but also buying players from abroad? I'll start with League One and League Two. Obviously, they are mainly domestic. They always have been, and they probably always will be. We haven't seen too much of an impact in those leagues, especially League Two. I will just touch a little bit further on League One, though. There were, going back to 2017-18, 16 imports, foreign imports into the league in that season and across all different types of leagues, even some leagues that became Band 1 and Band 2. Then, really, Band 6 kind of took over. There's a nice graph in the document which kind of details where these players have come from and band six which is now known as kind of the rest of the world really outside of the bands one to five which are detailed leagues basically we're getting journeymen coming into league one and getting the contract obviously that is no longer kind of available really most players that are able to be able to get a gbe come from band one and band two and sometimes band three leagues most of the other leagues in the world are out of bounds in terms of being able to pass the 15 point threshold so that's had an effect on league one hardly any players come in now and all of the money that is spent by league one clubs and league two clubs if any obviously there's not that many fee transfers made in those two leagues is 100 domestic so all of the money that is spent tends to be either in the national league or championship or kind of within those two leagues so that's the picture lower down the championship is a really interesting one by far the biggest affected league from this process the premier league is so powerful in being able to bring in band one players so players from the top five leagues the championship maybe they'll look at band two maybe they'll look at band three but because those markets are so narrow now there's been a real reduction in the market that they can attract so where there is still fifty thousand professional players out there in europe the actual market that the championship can shop is narrow there's only around about four thousand five hundred players that will pass the gba plus 18 to 20 players that might get in on an exceptions panel but out of those four and a half thousand most of them will be mainly looking at the premier league so what we've seen in the championship is a reduction in the number of transfers being made a reduction in the amount of spending that's been done and that's not solely a Brexit reason part of that is Covid part of that is an uncertain financial market and also analysing what they've done in the past and realising that they probably overspent you know only four years ago Isaac and Benza moved to Huddersfield for 11.25 million it's only five seasons ago that Middlesbrough spent over 10 million on British Samba Longo and Martin Brathwaite in the same window. Whereas you look at the transfers that are happening in the Championship now, over the last two seasons post Brexit seasons, eight of the top 10 transfers have been conducted by parachute payment clubs. And actually, and this is really interesting, 
in the summer just gone, nine out of the top 10 transfers were foreign imports. So this is the first summer in which foreign spending has actually outstripped domestic spending in the championship. So even though that window is narrow, there's still opportunities there. And Burnley and Hull City probably changed the dynamic of this summer in terms of bringing in Vincent Company in Burnley's case and signing, I think it's five or six players from Belgium, which is a Bantu league. And Turkey is a Bantu league and obviously Hull City's owner is Turkish and he kind of supported that league and brought some players over. Possibly an anomaly, but it's something that we will be closely observing over the next few seasons. What we're concerned about from an EFL perspective is being able to bring in the quality of players, but also having the quantity available to kind of shop in and be able to use your skills as recruitment teams and not be kind of dictated to by the regulations. There's a load of really interesting points to pick up on that. Like you were saying at the end, in terms of being smart, particularly over the past four or five seasons, we've seen a number of clubs getting intelligent about how they use recruitment using Datamore, for example, clubs like Brentford. They've really nailed shopping in the Scandinavian leagues, which makes sense because of the co-ownership with Michelin, but also say in Zweite Bundesliga, there are leagues that are now not open to those clubs who want to shop smartly and use data. I wonder whether, Andy, what you see, and this refers also to your point about parachute payments, a combination of reducing the pool of players that you can shop in to game other people by getting an edge through data and analytics, whether that's significantly reduced and is now much harder to do. And also, if all the big transfers are being conducted by clubs that get parachute payments having been relegated from the Premier League, it's actually one of the side effects of this, the creation of a kind of second tier of clubs towards the top end of the championship who are going to entrench themselves because of this cycle of parachute payments, allowing them to get better quality players from abroad, other clubs not being able to shop as smartly because the pool is so much smaller. You can still be smart within your methods, but to answer the Brentford thing where they were using probably leagues that other people weren't shopping in as much, that is something that, yeah, you're right, can no longer be done really because the pool is a narrow stream, so you can only really look in France, Italy... Germany, Spain, the top divisions of Portugal, Belgium, Holland, Turkey, and then potentially, and this is where we might see something change in the next few years, band three leagues, which are Brazil, Argentina, Mexico, and Russia. So, you know, let's leave Russia out of it for now for obvious reasons. But we've seen Norwich this summer by Gabriel Sara, which was the most expensive transfer of the summer in the championship. And they've also bought Marcelinho Nunez, which is a slightly different case because he came from not one of those band three leagues, he came from a different league, but because of his age, he was able to get in under an exceptions panel, I believe. If those two players are successful, and it seems like Norwich have integrated them very well and they are producing the good, that might be the next growth area so even though you can't use Scandinavia you can't use the you know most of the teams in Czech Republic or Poland or other areas Central Europe or Eastern Europe there's stipulations where you might be able to like if a team from those leagues does very well in Europe for instance and you'll find that maybe a lot of the, the smarter clubs will be looking at the edge cases where a player may become eligible the market around the edge cases is going to be really interesting because sometimes players are eligible and sometimes they're not depending on the period the reference period in which they've been playing in and how they've 
performed and how the club's performed in that time. So there is still room for being smart and also being smart domestically as well and, and using your process as well. So there will always be recruitment teams that do well. And as situations change, it's the ones that are agile and can adapt to these changes that will ultimately be successful. In terms of one of the really big edge cases, John, there's a distinction between how things are done in England and Scotland, particularly with reference to the exceptions panel. Can you take us quickly through what those differences are? There really is. The Scottish FIH GBE regulation guidance, real key difference in, in the wording, where the English FA state that a player going before an exceptions panel must achieve between 10 and 14 points. The Scottish FA's regulation only states that a player going before the exceptions panel must only not achieve 15 points and many, many players approved by the exceptions panel up in Scotland that got nowhere near 10 points and the impact report finds that 21% of all transfers in Scotland could not have been completed by English clubs. This is all behind a curtain if you like, we don't really know the criteria being considered. What does a player, what does a club need to show? to the SFA to get the endorsement approved. We've seen players endorsed who have as low as two, three points. So it's it's very difficult and certainly seems to be creating a two-tier system within the UK. The UK immigration system should be the same throughout the country, but it seems that players perhaps of a lower quality are being endorsed to work in Scotland where they wouldn't be endorsed to work in England. And obviously there's context to that. It's a different landscape in Scotland. Scottish clubs can't afford to shop in the same markets as the Premier League, but perhaps that would be better addressed with a changing of the rules as opposed to just leaving all transfers to be approved by an exceptions panel with no clarity or real understanding of the process to that. Presumably, given that it's not incumbent upon the exceptions panel to explain their rationale, we are dealing with a closed-door system here where players are either getting it or they're not. And that creates a really uncertain landscape for clubs to operate in on both sides of the border. Just talking about that in terms of a club preparing a case to put before an exceptions panel, either in England or Scotland, how would you go about doing that? What's the kind of information you're looking to gather? What's the kind of case that you're trying to make? Scottish scouts and clubs understand that it's very likely that a player will be approved via the exceptions panel if they can show who have a positive impact to the game of Scotland. Again, incredibly vague. Scottish clubs are actively scouting and recruiting from the lower bands. So I think they seem pretty confident they're able to get these players through. English clubs, there's a little more certainty. You need to achieve between 10 and 14 points so you would think they wouldn't attempt to have an endorsement approved for someone who fell below the 10 points although there's perhaps examples you can point to where that can also be questioned but I think there is more certainty for the English game than there is for Scotland. I agree with that. The Scottish clubs are definitely confident that they will get their players through the exceptions panel. It's an interesting one for English clubs in that if you're looking to buy an 18 to 21 player, so a youth player is, is defined in the regulations, 
There isn't as much certainty. Chewie Sun Bennett and Abdullah Bar were signed by Sunderland in this summer transfer window, and they obviously both did get the work permits that they required. But I don't know what the case was that Sunderland put to the English FA to be able to get them to pass. And I presume other clubs have tried signing 18 to 20 players and not been successful in doing so. Sunderland were the only ones outside of the Premier League to sign someone in that age bracket in terms of a foreign player. So it's really interesting because I would love to know what Sunderland said to the FA. And also I think that Diego Costa case at Wolves, he was approved by the exceptions panel. I don't see how he achieved 10 points. So it's not just Scotland. The landscape isn't clear in England as well. One quick question to you, John, on the kind of case that you would put to an exceptions panel, does the quality of the buying club make any difference? If I, for example, in Sunderland's case, Sunderland's a big, well-established club. It's been a Premier League club, not that recently, but relatively recently. Training facilities and stadium and so on uh, are all going to be better than most clubs in that league. Can they put forward a case that says not just does the player that we're buying have an intrinsic quality and potential to develop and positively affect the game, but we are more likely to be able to facilitate that because we have the best youth training facilities in our region and so on. Does that make any difference? It does make a difference. You're a Premier League club. If you want a player, Diego Costa is a big name. There's a willingness to approve and endorse that transfer and, and the same can be said for coaches and managers and there was a case of Ralph Ranick. United wanted him as interim coach. They had to apply for an endorsement because he didn't meet the automatic GBE requirements but if Manchester United come knocking at the door they want this guy as a manager. Manchester United are one of the top clubs in the world. If they want this guy as manager then it's probably clear that he should be considered an elite and qualified coach. So in short yes it's, it's hard for the FA to question the appointment of a coach at Manchester United and say that he's not of the requisite standard. Andy, we've referred to these differences between the English and Scottish markets in terms of how the process works. What does the data tell us about how those material differences are actually affecting the spending in Scotland? So Scotland want their game to improve and to be competitive. And it's very important for Scotland that they are able to compete with other nations around them in the UEFA coefficient, because that coefficient is currently allowing them a lot of privileges in terms of their teams in Europe. We've seen Rangers and Celtic compete in the Champions League in the group stages for the first time in certainly for a long time, and that both clubs have been in the group stage. Half of the league was competing in Europe at the start of the season. Hearts obviously have been in the group stage of the Conference League. So these are the kind of factors that feed into what they want to do as a, as a nation in football. So they want the national team to also thrive and get to World Cups and European finals. So how did they achieve that? They need high quality domestic competition. And because obviously Scotland has a low number of people, they feel that they would need that level of foreign talent coming into their, their domestic game. So that's obviously the motivation behind it. What we have actually seen, if you look at the transfers pre-Brexit, there were 27 players who would have needed a permit. Obviously, they didn't need one back then because it was pre-Brexit, but they would have needed one if they'd have come in now. However, out of those 27, only three of those made a substantial impact in the game. Only three of them played over 50% of the available minutes that they were there. And actually, none of them are household names. It's Laurentiu Brunescu, Ilkay Dermas and Dario Del Fabro. Kilmarnock and St Mirren fans may remember those players, but I couldn't pick them out of a lineup personally. If you look at 
2020-21 season, which was obviously COVID-affected. There was far fewer foreign signings brought in in general. But again, only two of them played over the minutes allowed. And one of them was Giando Fuchs, who's now at Peterborough, I believe. And um, he would have made the 15-point criteria anyway. So that's kind of the picture as it was. Clubs were recruiting these players, but they weren't being very successful in doing so. But in the post-Brexit era, we go back to recruiting quite a lot of players. I think it was about 30 in 2021-22. So higher than previously, which obviously is meant to be restricted because of the Brexit regulations. We've already discussed that it isn't like that in Scotland. What has actually happened is that a lot of these players have made a big impact. So players like Christian Ramirez and Vicente Beshua and Aberdeen both played over 80% of the minutes last season. Dyson Maeda and Nathaniel Atkinson at Hearts came in January and made a big impact in terms of getting them qualified for the Europa League qualifying stages. They finished third. Players like Leo Labada, Rio Atate, Juranovic, all these players that we kind of know at Celtic and Hearts have done really well. So what I can't do is explain that i have no idea because these players would have been available regardless of brexit and regardless of the rules that have been put into place and if we look into this season the summer just gone again there's been a lot of signings you know john hinted at the fact that a couple of these players wouldn't have even got five points in the gpe scale a player like bojan miofsky at aberdeen has played over 900 minutes so far this season they paid about half a million pounds for him but what's interesting is if these players are playing a lot of minutes in scotland what does that mean for a the Scottish game but also is there a pathway then for these players to come into the English game are we starting to see a pathway to Scotland and then into England we haven't seen that yet but the rules only came into force in winter 2021 so we're only going to start to see that now are we going to see a stream of these players coming into either the Premier League or the Championship so if I'm a director of football in England or potentially even a club owner but we can get to that in a second I'm looking at the opportunities to exploit here, and I say exploit in the nicest possible way, uh, the differences between Scotland and England. Am I correct in stating firstly that if a player gets a work permit for a three-year work period on the basis of having a three-year contract in Scotland, that if they then move south of the border into England, they do not require a new work permit for a new contract because they have leave to work or remain in the UK zone for three years? And so that's fine. Is that correct? So the endorsement is tied to the player's contract at his club. So if he was to move south of the border to an English club, he would require to submit a new application to the FA for endorsement and apply for a new visa. Talking about Scotland being a gateway into England, it's still possible that they would acquire the necessary points for endorsement. Scotland could be ranked a higher ranked league than that player's previous club. Therefore, they could accumulate enough points to meet the requirements for the FA in England. Well, that's really interesting, because also if UEFA coefficients are helping Scottish clubs into European competition, and we know that continental competition does get quite a few points, this may be a way, for example, if a club in England were to establish some sort of multi-club ownership model involving a club in Scotland, they could effectively use that club in Scotland to secure players that would not be available otherwise, school them in the ways of that club for a couple of years, accrue sufficient points, move them south of the border, which would then, once that application had occurred, grant them a further three years to be able to play over here. Does that, Andy, seem like a potential thing that could happen? So Scotland's a band three league, so it's certainly possible for 
players to accrue the points, especially, like you say, with the continental competition and the other points that you can get on top of that. So it certainly is a viable route. What I would say is that there are social and political reasons why it probably wouldn't work for an English club to be involved with a Scottish club. I'm not even sure about the legality of that, obviously. But what we have seen is that multi-club ownership is a benefit to a club like Brighton, for instance, where Tony Bloom also owns Union Saint-Jouar in Belgium, which is a Bantu league, and we've seen Kasper Kozlovski go over there last season. They bought him, I think, in the January and sent him to a US chief for the rest of the season. He's able to accrue good GPE points there to then be able to play maybe future in the Premier League. I think he's currently at Vitesse, again, doing the same sort of thing. Karu Mitoma, I think, also played over in Belgium. So multi-club ownership is definitely something that a lot of English club owners are looking at in terms of being able to kind of get around GBE. If you pick the right club in the right country, then you open yourself back up to the whole world market. Especially if you're buying young players, you can bring them into that club, like you say, school them in the way that you would want them to be schooled. And almost preparing them for the Premier League, but if not, then preparing them and being able to sell them on for a good profit. So that's something that we need to watch out for. Whether clubs, say, like Hibernian, would be interested in being owned by a British club and being seen as subservient to that club, as just a, tr- a finishing centre for a Premier League club. You can imagine the uproar at Easter Road if that was to occur. I think that's a very fair point, and it sounds like there are opportunities to exploit, both through multi-club ownership and through the differences between Scotland and England. But those opportunities are not necessarily the same, because it's worth pointing out, and people who've played football manager will know this, you can buy a player who doesn't go on to secure a work permit and then just send them somewhere else. They're not allowed to play in the UK, and I presume they're also not allowed to reside here, but you can own them and have them on loan at another club. Yeah, that's absolutely correct, Alex. It's back to the point. You can sign a player without a GBE, but they can't play or work in the UK with a GBE. Therefore, they wouldn't have the right to reside here. So like a Carlos Vela example, back in the day, he was signed and then sent on loan multiple times until he's able to qualify for a work permit, albeit that was a completely different immigration system there. Thank you. I'm going to come to you now, John, for a different set of rules that applies to women's football. So the point systems are different. The exceptions panel is different. Um, What else are the differences? The criterion process are very, very similar. The need for more points for endorsement for women doesn't really mean it's more difficult for women to qualify. The, The points are just allocated a little differently. Points are, again, and through international appearances there's still an auto pass again other requirements include quality of domestic league playing time final league position continental competition participation etc as you said there's also an exceptions panel for those who don't achieve 24 points so it's between 20 and 23 so there's there's slight differences obviously a completely different football landscape the banding is different but the actual process and submission of a gbe is very similar andy there seems to be an issue with the banding system in women's football can you just briefly explain that to us I'm not sure if people in the game think it is an issue or not, but I, I certainly found some interesting anomalies around the banding system. Because the women's is so kind of linear, they've only got two bands, band one, which contains most of the high-performing leagues in the world. So it's the Australian W League, French top division, the Italian top division, the German top division, the national WSL in US, the Spanish top division and the Swedish top division. So it does encompass most of the highest-performing leagues. And any other league outside of those is classified as band two 
So, for instance, five points for those clubs where you get ten points for representing a club in band one. So, obviously, that gives you a massive head start. Then, the likelihood of being in continental competition and being an international is obviously much more enhanced by being in band one. So, you can see how that can affect where you can buy your players from. So, basically, the WSL and Championship clubs, if they want to use the system, are being kind of funneled down this. You can really mainly only buy from these leagues. So, that's what we're talking about here but in band two we have leagues like the norwegian league the dutch league the danish league swiss league anybody else from the us as well and let's just take norway as an example because i think this is the most egregious example of what i'm talking about over the last four or five seasons more players were signed from norway's top division than the us italy and spain same numbers were signed from australia and actually, Norwegian players, when they've come over here, have done exceptionally well. On average, the 10 that came over averaged 55% of the available minutes, which is second really only to the NWSL players that came over the US top division players. But if you compare that to Sweden, who had 18 imports into the WSL, on average, they only played about 32% of the minutes as a cohort. Obviously, the players from the Swedish league are not necessarily all Swedish. that have come in and made a big impact in their clubs in the WSL. But as a whole, they actually have performed worse than the players coming in from the Norwegian League. So I guess my question is, should Norway be in band one? Should there actually be a three-band system where you've got Norway and Netherlands, possibly some other developing leagues, Denmark, for example, in that middle? Or, you know, what's the reasoning for Norway and Netherlands not being in there if they're being used by WSL clubs and also the players are coming over and having an impact? Yeah, I think the banding question is really interesting because we've talked about UEFA coefficients being advantageous to Scotland. There are coefficients for all football leagues. We also have ELO rankings, which is quite a good proxy for club quality and therefore league quality. Is it likely that as this process continues and leagues get stronger or weaker, both in terms of their coefficients, but also in terms of the ELO rankings and so on, will the bands change? Will the Eredivisie drop down to being a different band? Will Norway's women's top tier surge up? How might that process occur? Is this the kind of thing where the FA have gone, nope, these are our bands, this is what we're sticking with, or is there going to be movement? It's a very interesting situation. They've obviously chosen these bands at the beginning of the regulations for both the women's and the men's game. There has been two changes, I think, in the men's game. Going back off memory here, Denmark were moved from band five to band four, and I think Sweden were moved up a band as well in the men's game. We haven't seen any other changes. And what's interesting in the men's game is that Turkey is in band two, despite the fact that their coefficient and their UEFA ranking, if you want to term it that, has dropped substantially since the regulations were brought in, and yet there's been no movement of the league in terms of the banding. In terms of managerial and coaching appointments, with the rules that have changed there, there seems to be little in the way of material effect at this point. You've already brought up the Ralph Ranić case, and you can make a strong argument that someone of his level of experience, even if he hasn't met the specific criteria of having been a head coach within a particular period of time, he's got the badges, he's a very well-established figure in world football, he should be fine for the job. Is it also because there are relatively few managers to players, and the impact we're going to see much more is to do with specific coaching rules and managers being able to bring the coaching staff that they've worked with in their previous jobs abroad with them in a way that was previously kind of expected? What we've actually seen, and there's a little bit in the document about this, is that there hasn't been that much of a change in terms of the percentage appointments that are going domestically and foreign for Premier League clubs. To a point, there's obviously suckings going on all the time, so 
who knows how the data will pan out over a longer period and there is a bit of a small sample size at the moment but it feels like the criteria aren't as rigorously enforced for managers and coaching staff as they are for players and the reason I say this is obviously the Ralph Renick example there's also Bruno Large got for an exceptions penalty with Wolves manager because he was only in charge of is it Benfica for a year and seven months something like that and it's meant to be two years consecutive in a band one to five league or three years in total in the last five years so the criteria are there but they don't seem to be applied if as John mentioned with the Ralph Rednick case there can be a very solid case to be made that this manager will have a positive impact on the club and therefore the league. In the championship, there's been fewer foreign appointments by around about 9%, although Jan Dale Thomason and Vincent Company came in in the summer and both of those have had a very positive impact. But it's interesting because both of those were very edge cases. Jan Dale Thomason was in charge of Malmo for, it's probably more like one year, 11 months and 20-odd days. It was very close to the two-year line and Vincent Company was one year and 11 months as well and elect as a permanent manager but um, Company might fall under and John mentioned it earlier I'm not quite sure what his settled status is he was obviously in England for a long time so he may well have had that anyway so it may not have applied so much to him but certainly a Thomason one was, was interesting. But there does seem to be more domestic appointments. You mentioned supporting staff. I think it was Renny again who wanted to appoint someone who didn't pass the criteria and he wasn't able to do so. There was that famous case of him having that video analyst from a different country who was analysing from that country. And I'm not sure whether that person would have passed an exceptions panel or got the criteria because there are criteria for not every role interestingly but lots of different roles within the club if you go on the FA website you can see what the criteria are for an assistant manager for a fitness coach for youth development manager things like that so it goes a lot deeper than maybe a lot of people realize I do wonder too whether the fact there's considerably more fluctuation in the managerial market across the whole of Europe and indeed globally like It's super hard for a manager to stick out the same job for two years and even be employed for three out of five years, even if they're very good, because managers get sacked way more frequently than players do. I just wonder whether there's some sort of tolerance built into the system, the FA are aware of the landscape being incredibly volatile, and therefore sticking quite so rigidly to the rules actually just doesn't make sense. It's difficult as someone who can observe those rules to understand why certain rules are being enforced rigidly and some aren't being enforced quite as rigidly, even if it does make sense. No doubt Ralph Rennick is someone who benefits the game, whether he did a good job at Manchester United or not. He's a coach of good renown, who a lot of coaches look up to, and Bruno Large did a good job at Wolves for a certain period of time. It seems like managers and certain players, especially in Scotland, they're coming in through the back door via the exceptions panel, and it makes it very hard to advise on the criteria. So I believe it would make sense to have another look at the criteria, and if they feel they should be changed, change it and and, and have clear guidelines as opposed to just going through the exceptions panel each time. John, that brings us to the next point I'd like to look at briefly. Obviously, there's confusion, uncertainty, different wording. Clubs will have different approaches to how they go about this process. How have clubs taken to the new process? Are they accepting what's happening and going along with decisions? You implied earlier that perhaps they're not necessarily putting forward players who they don't think will get a GBE. But is there a sense that clubs have knuckled down to the new regulations or are just doing their best to understand and work with them? 
I don't think so. I think clubs are still struggling with the new system. As as Andy said, the, the FA announced the criteria in December 2020 and it came into effect the very first day of January 2021. So clubs, advisors, they didn't have time to get to grips with the rules and I think we've seen that play out over the following transfer windows. But to your question whether clubs are accepting the process for the moment, it seems as if they have to. The GBE process has been approved by the Home Office. GBE endorsement is required for the International Sportsperson Visa and that's that. It's also unclear how a club would go about making a challenge to the process. Certainly legally, I don't see how that's possible. We do know there's open dialogue with the Premier League, the FA, the SFA and, and from speaking with the Premier League, it seems they are but in considerations forward for discussion and you would assume the Premier League clubs would like more access to the market and more clarity for sure and I think certainly as discussed that the lower leagues and, and Scottish clubs would also not every club can afford to shop in band one and band two but we haven't seen the assessment of the banding in any real detail and you would hope that going forward that's something that would take place perhaps before the beginning of every summer transfer window to redefine the rules and make them more relevant to the current footballing landscape so we're going to end now with a two-part question to each of you john i'll start with you if you were to pick one predominant effect and one predominant area of further research as a result of these what would they be Andy's the research expert and he and the team have really done some incredible work on this report and I think that the research done for the report is genuinely first of its kind and the relevant associations and clubs should take note of the findings. Perhaps I'll let Andy delve into what his next project will be and I know the team has lots of ideas but I will say that the sample size is still very very small. These rules only changed in January 2021. So some early trends have been identified, but more time is needed before we can make definite conclusions on the true impact these these rules are having on the game. For me, as a lawyer, one thing I would like to see changed is a regular reassessment of the banding. And if there's an understanding that the rules as they stand don't necessarily work for clubs, then rather have the exceptions panel just take these into consideration and then take a a common sense approach when assessing an appeal. Perhaps those considerations should be put down in black and white in the criteria so they are understood at the outset rather than just hoping they are understood and, and taken into account by the exceptions panel. I think the absolute key thing that we've seen and needs to be shouted from the rooftops here is that the market is completely different to the way that it was pre-Brexit. And although it doesn't affect the Premier League as much, if we're talking about an overall effect of England and Scotland, then not being able to shop in 90% of the world's market is a big deal. And I think if you look at the Scottish Premiership and the Championship as kind of of an equal sort of standing in terms of the quality of players that they attract to be able to have one of those leagues who is shopping everywhere and their recruitment teams are looking for talent you know practically all over the world and for another set of teams in the same country politically that can't do that and he's only been able to look at it in a very narrow band very narrow selection of players that everybody else is also competing for as well then there is a fundamental issue there and whether that is fair or unfair, I'm not here to decide, but that is what the data is pointing out. So that's 
the absolute key for me is that this is what's happened. It's an interesting picture to look at, and it's certainly worth monitoring going forward, as John has already referenced. The sample size is tiny at the moment. We've only had four windows of transfers. So let's just keep monitoring that and seeing how, if nothing changes, then we can really observe a good effect over time. In terms of future research, I think, you know, it's worth modelling what might change if the regulations did change. So if there was a change in the bandings or what would be an impact in the change of the number of points that were needed to get or what would be the impact of a change of how those points were made up. That would be an interesting one to look at. The increasing profile of the women's game obviously means that a greater amount of the budget is being allocated to recruitment. So there should be a, a greater depth looked at the women's game and how that might change going forwards. But definitely there's loads of things to look at. What we haven't mentioned in this so far is the effect on the domestic players already in the game. What's the effect on the number of minutes that English players, Scottish players, British players are getting and does it matter about the quantity or the quality of those? And can we look at whether the quality of the leagues are improving as a result of these imports and these regulations? So there's so much to look at. It's really exciting, but at the same time, pivotal for the future of the domestic game and the quality that we aspire to provide. Well, it sounds like Brexit Ball 2, your next report, John and Andy, will be a barnstormer and presumably come out in a year or so. Thank you both for joining us. That was a really thorough and engaging look at what is, without question, both a complex issue and an issue that has a huge impact on the market. I'm sure our audience will have a lot to take away from that to think about. And of course, I would remind all of you that our Brexit Ball report will be available through the Analytics FC website. We'll also be sending our newsletter, which provides all of the details for that. But for now, John Kylie and Andy Watson, thank Thank you both so much for joining us and uh, we look forward to catching up with you again once more research has been conducted and the sample size has grown thanks again everyone bye bye thanks alex thanks alex